Welcome to Inside the Rope, the podcast where we speak to the leading minds in wealth management. I'm your host, David Clark, and in this episode, I speak with Matthias Westman, the founder of Prosperity Capital, an investment manager that invests in public companies in Russia and the former Soviet Union. Matthias splits his time between the firm's Moscow and London offices where I caught up with him during a recent trip to the UK and Israel with a client in May Just Gone. Matthias founded the firm in 2000. He was also a co-founder of Russia's Investor Protection Association and has served on the board of numerous Russian companies. Prior to starting the funds management business, Matthias held positions with ABN AMRO's Russia department and the Swedish stockbroking firm H&Q. We discuss the Prosperity Quest Russia fund that he manages, a fundamental value style equities fund that invests in the Russian and former Soviet Union companies and has produced a compound annual growth rate of 25% since inception in 2000. Remember, this podcast is not designed to be, nor is it a recommendation to buy any specific investment. I encourage you to seek advice prior to making any investment decisions and to listen to the disclaimer at the end of the podcast. Please remember to keep the feedback coming. You can reach me at david.clark at codacapital.com. Thanks and enjoy the podcast. Matthias, welcome to Inside the Rope. Thank you. Thank you. Perhaps you could kick off and give us a bit about your background and also the background of the firm. Yeah, sure. Uh, so, um, of course, investing in, in Russia is fairly unusual, so the, the, the route to get there is also a little bit interesting, maybe. So, the, the, the origin was probably that uh, in Sweden we have national service, and I did my military service in a kind of an army intelligence school where we were effectively taught to be uh, interrogators. So we learned Russian and how to extract information from Russians. So that's what we do now too. And, uh, Except you're doing it out of company directors. Yeah, exactly. Uh, and then when I went to business school later, there was a professor there who became one of the, the primary advisors uh, to the Russian government uh, and in designing the privatization program. So we were became aware of how it worked. This was already in, you know, 93. Mm-hmm. And, uh, so I took whatever little money I had at that point, uh, to, and I already was then working in, in an investment bank, and invested in uh, in one of the privatization auctions with these vouchers, where every Russian got a privatization voucher and that they could exchange for shares in one company of their choice. But since these were bearer instruments, uh, they were bought and sold, and I tended mine for an oil company called Sugotnefty Gas that we actually still have in the portfolio. And uh, at that point, this company, which uh, Produces about one and a half million barrels a day, uh, was worth uh, kind of the equivalent of uh, seventy-one million dollars. So that was a pretty good investment to start with. And today, yeah. it's worth. Well, the, the the company I think is worth around thirty billion. But interesting, they they also have uh, forty-five billion dollars in cash on the balance sheet. So it's uh, it, it's a bit of an unusual company. But uh, yeah, it it went up by twenty times in the matter of three months or so. Wow. So after that, I was pretty hooked to, <laughs> to investing in Russia. It took a couple of years before uh, me and one of my colleagues who have the same background as mine uh, got the support to set up the fund. So we started it in '96, and we've been running the same fund uh, since then. Okay, and fast forward to today, what does the organization look like? Sort of how many people, how many well, funds the, the, under management? Well, the, the, uh, the company now has, uh, I think, 31 employees, and we have uh, roughly $4 billion under management in a, you know, both funds and, and a couple of mandates from, uh, from 
using REIT, sovereign wealth funds, and so on. And most of the investors, what do they look like? Sovereign wealth funds? Well, you know, sovereign wealth funds is now the biggest category, but uh, we also have endowments, uh, pension funds, uh, family offices, and, and so forth. Mm -hmm. So, quite widespread uh, between mainly, well, it's almost equal parts North America, uh, Middle East, and Europe. Uh, and yeah, I'll spread a little bit. Thankfully, we have some investors from Australia also now. And a, and a little bit from down under. Yeah. So uh, what what would you, like for a lot of our investors mm. and, and clients, when they think about Russia, mm. they immediately um, become concerned. Mm. Um, they're not used to um, the, the investment opportunity and they're, they're quite fearful around governance mm. um, and, and issues like that. Can you perhaps describe the business conditions in Russia for, for those type of people and those investors? Well, I, I think what <laughs> the, the main misunderstanding, and of course this misunderstanding is, is quite widespread, is that people think it's very politicized. But in reality, most companies are just companies trying to do their business and you know it's our job to try to understand which management teams are better at doing it, better at modernizing their companies, making more efficient and productive. Uh, you know, looking after corporate governance to make sure that their you know people's uh, investments are secure and so on. So it's actually much more normal than I think most people think. Uh, I understand that for a lot of investors, they discuss mainly politics, but we spend most of our time, you know, doing regular work trying to understand who who generates cash. And I think you know, uh, for for your uh, Australian um, audience. You're quite used to, you know, big commodity-oriented companies, which is the bulk of the uh, of the uh, market cap in the Russian market. Also, you have some of the best-run and, and you know lowest-cost producers of almost any commodity you can think of, uh, particularly after the valuations that happened lately, uh, you know, in the last few years. So, uh, you know, do you have management teams who are just working hard to? You know, increase the intrinsic value of the companies, and we work like any proper value investor would do, looking for for uh, you know trigger points, looking for value creation, looking for cash flows, like you would. Uh, you know, the last few years, like I said, many investors, particularly in North America, have been a little bit scared off the Russian market, and that's you can see that reflected in the very low valuations. I mean, we have. Uh, PE is over, you know, I think the portfolio PE is less than four now. Mm -hmm. And we have a, a very strong dividend yields in a lot of the companies because they've been become much better than they used to be in generating cash. Uh, so I think the portfolio uh, cash flow is about eight, eight uh, percent uh, dividend yield. With a PE below four times. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And, and that, of course, includes some companies that don't pay that much dividends. So we have many companies with, that have double digit dividend yields. And, uh, you know, that's, uh, in my view, very attractive. And historically, the price-earnings ratio of the market has been around what level? Well, it's been on a lot of different levels. I mean, if you go back, you know, pre-2008, uh, we, you know, had 12, 14 and things like that. Mm -hmm. and, and, but since then, it has declined. And, and even if the market has recovered and, you know, our funds in particular are above what we were, uh, where we were pre that crisis, but the, the P's are, you know, less than half and what they were then. And another thing which I find interesting, because if you look at the PEs, uh, you know, 10 years ago, they were fairly attractive anyway, not as attractive as now, 
but most companies didn't really generate much in terms of, of uh, free cash flow, uh, dividends and so on. Now it's much more tangible. These profits appear to be much more real than, than maybe they were a few years ago when, when you didn't get that, that payout. And so I think in reality the attractiveness of the Russian companies have increased uh, and the governance that you see in the companies have, has improved a lot in the last few years. Sometimes, often when times are a little bit tougher, then people focus more and, and uh, do their job. You know. Yes, and you mentioned governance there. Yeah. I think one of the things you're active in is improving the governance on companies that you employ, can you, that yeah. you invest in. Can you talk well, a little bit to that? Yeah, and I think it's a very important part because it's often people, you know, they want to think about your good investments. <laughs> but, you know, inevitably you make some mistakes also. And, and if you can make those mistakes less costly, that increases the, the overall return on your, of your portfolio in the, in the long term. So we work quite a lot with the companies, with the board of, boards of directors, with the management teams to try to improve, continuously improve the, uh, the corporate governance and to minimize those risks, uh, which uh, we, if, if we look through the, uh, you know, this more than 20 years or 25 years even, you know, most of the problematic things that we've encountered have actually been corporate governance related. So if we, if we work to de decrease those risks or mitigate them, then uh, I think we, uh, we've done our job at least and, and I think we've uh, enhanced the return of the portfolio. So we work you know, a lot, both kind of structurally uh, with the government, with the regulator and so on to make them you know, make the right rules. Uh, we work with the companies, not in a kind of, a, it's not necessarily a conflict and most of the time we're you know, just engaging with them to try to inform them and how to be more transparent, what, what is expected of them, because maybe not all of them have that much experience from, from capital markets. And then, of course, there are some situations where you know, somebody has done something not quite right and we need to put our foot down a little bit. And, but that's a, a small number of cases. How many companies are in the portfolio at the moment and how many typically do you focus on? Well, what we're, what we're attempting to do is to have around 25 companies in the portfolio. Uh, and the overwhelming majority of the value of the, of the portfolio is in those. There is a little bit of tail of small, small investments, but in general, that's, that's where we want to be and, and try to identify uh, you know, situations where we think kind of intrinsic value is increasing. And if we have identified it on a situation like that, then of course we want to have a good exposure to that. So relatively concentrated portfolio. Can you give us an example where an investment thesis has played out or is playing out um, to the upside and something that's gone well and how yeah. you've handled that? Yeah. Um, and then maybe to the counter side of that where you've made an investment and what sort of style of company where it hasn't worked out and how you manage that in the process. Yeah. Well, we can take uh, one example. It's, it's you know quite lengthy one, but it, it's illustrative anyway, I think, uh, in the food retailing industry. So there are a lot of people who were aware that you know the Russian consumer was getting better off and thinking that you know the food retailing would be a good way of, ben of benefiting from this. And if you come like a top-down investor, uh, then uh, you see, oh, this is the biggest retailer that was X5 at the time, mm -hmm. and uh, it looked like an interesting company. But we had our our views that maybe this is not the perfect vehicle because m most of their sales at that time was really in wealthy areas selling more expensive things to wealthier people uh, at good margins, of course, so they had very good margins overall. Uh, but we found uh, another company uh, that was selling you know, 
things more cheaply to, <laughs> to people with not as much money. And of course there are, you know, 20 times as many of those or 50 times as many of those in Russia than, than rich people. So that model we felt was, was more, it was easier to roll out in the rest of the country and keep growing. So if the first company X5 was almost like a real estate play <laughs> that they had very good locations, uh, Magnet, the other company, was more like a logistics play. So they were very good at, at rolling out, at opening stores. So when, 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 when Magnet was listed, it was uh, about half the size, I think, or maybe a third even, in terms of sales. But it was a sixth, a sixth of the market cap of X5. But we, we, uh, we liked the company. I went on the board of that company, actually. And uh, um, you know, invested quite a lot in, into it. And over the next few years, their sales grew very rapidly. They managed to open sometimes you know, 1,500 stores a year, which is quite dramatic, I would say. Wow. And, and, uh, and they became bigger than, than, than X5. And they had better margins because X5 was trying to do what they had been doing, rolling out other areas and it didn't work. So they had some problems with their profitability. So let's say six years after uh, this time when, when X5 had six times the, the market cap, Actually, Magnet had six times the market cap of X5, so like a 36 times uh, difference in in uh, in return between those two investments. So that's you know illustrates a focus on trying to understand the competence of the management, seeing that this is not a top-down play, but but actually what matters more, much more, what the individual entrepreneurs uh, and, and management teams do, mm -hmm. and and so. That's, that's, that's an example of... I think today you're still holding X5, is that Well, what happened a little bit later was that they realized their problems and they revamped and, and you changed the management and then they started improving. Uh, so now it's not as, as clear as maybe it was then. Uh, and I would say that the X5 management has improved a lot mm -hmm. compared to what it was when they were losing <laughs> to, to Magnet over, over several years. Okay. So we did actually, at some point around that time when, when X5, was, when Magnet was... Uh, worth you know six times as, as much as, as X5. We did actually swap back some of the shares into X5 when we saw that they changed the management and kind of understood what the problems they had had. And then uh, I think now they have roughly the same market cap actually. So it's uh, it's shifted several it's shifted. times. And I mean I wouldn't say we have done these swaps perfectly, but pretty good I would say. And uh, on on a side where it hasn't worked out so well, maybe. Well, I mean you can take uh, one example. Uh, so, like I said, we focus a lot on on, uh, on, uh, on the quality of management, and sometimes you try to anticipate, you know, what is going to happen. I mean, there's been a move uh, in amongst some of the state-controlled companies that they've replaced worse management with better management, and and you know that happened in a very spectacular way in, in Spearbank for instance which was very poorly run before and became much better run later. Uh, so we uh, anticipated a similar situation happening in Gazprom uh, and uh, I still think it will eventually but this eventually has taken a lot longer than we had uh, hoped for or expected. So even though I, there have been improvements in the company but they have not been as, as radical as we had thought they would be and the share price has not performed as well as we had hoped. So, uh, you know, there are, you know, of course it's impossible to, to find, you know, to make the right decision every time. But uh, I think 
and sometimes you have to anticipate things that haven't quite happened yet, and you think that something might happen, uh, uh, and then make an investment based on this. Uh, but, and I think it probably will, but it's taken longer than it should have. Matthias, can you talk a little bit about the investee companies and how many of them are focused actually, and how many of them are actually Russian uh, companies versus, I believe the fund can also invest in former Soviet Union, so yes. Ukraine. What, what are, just for clarification for our listeners, what, what is the investment set of those countries and, and how dispersed are you? Well, in, most, in those? still most of it is, is Russia-based businesses. Mm -hmm. I mean, often they have businesses across the former Soviet Union and so on, but the core of the businesses in, in most cases is in Russia. And I think at this point it's probably 85% uh, Russia or something like that in the portfolio. We do have some in, in Kazakhstan, we do have some in Ukraine, uh, little bit, bits and pieces here and there. Uh, you know, in Kazakhstan they have a lot of interesting commodities also, and you know, it's, it's, it's a com country that's becoming richer, so there are some opportunity to invest there. In Ukraine, of course, they've had a difficult political situation over, over the last mm -hmm. few years. But still, there's, for instance, one very good company there, that, uh, which is called MHP, which is the lowest cost producer and most efficient poultry producer in the world, really. And, wow. uh, and, uh, so this is a vertically integrated poultry Yes, they own, I think, 400,000 now, 350,000, 400,000 hectares of land. So they grow corn and, and uh, soybeans and so on. Yes. Uh, and uh, so they create their chicken feed and they have you know, chicken houses and <laughs> they breed the chicken and, and the slaughterhouses. And they are the, you know, probably some of the most mo modern in the world. And because the, the cheap uh, you know, feed that they have mm -hmm. and the cheap labor and all sorts, they are, they are actually the most competitive producer in the world. And, uh, and, so and the they started out as a relatively small uh, company, you know, only selling uh, in, in Ukraine, Ukraine. But over the year, years, the exports have, have been growing. They're, they're now selling quite a lot, to, particularly in the Middle East and North Africa and Turkey and so on. Uh, so increase, exports are not the majority of their sales. And, uh, you know, it's, it's easy if you're a, you're a low-cost producer. <laughs> and, and what sort of valuations do you, are you able to buy a company like that on? Well, uh, I think uh, Just MHP is somewhere around 5, I think, P. Uh, so still, and it's growing because they're opening more, uh, they're building more, more facilities and, and expanding. So for a, for a growing company with a you know, PE of 5, which is the cost leader in the world, I think that's a, that's a good proposition. I mean, I can see why people are a little bit hesitant with Ukrainian risk, uh, but this is a well-run company, I would say. And how do you manage that sort of Ukrainian risk or that geopolitical risk or think about that? What's your sort of framework? Well, it's... I don't think the risk of real turmoil is very big in, in Ukraine. I mean, in the middle of Europe, I mean, of course they have, you know, politicians win or lose, or they, they have some form of conflict with Russia, but it doesn't really affect the operations of a poultry producer or an or a, or a agriculture firm. So, I, I, you know, of course we monitor everything that goes on there, and we know some, some people in the Ukrainian government also, uh, but, uh, the, the concern isn't that so much. Of course, you know, the there's some volatility in the uh, exchange rate, which uh, you know affects the profitability of, of uh, exports from from Ukraine. But generally, those uh, 
most of that volatility has been down, so the, the cost levels have, have actually become even further uh, more attractive. And Matthias, with valuations so low as you've mentioned, have you seen much activity from private equity firms looking to delist companies and take them? Well, you see some activity, and the thing is, you, you, there are not so many big private equity firms operating, but there, there are financial industrial groups that operate like private equity firms. So somebody has a big steel mill or whatever it might be, or an oil company, and it generates a lot of lot of cash in dividends, and then they you know, deploy this by acquiring other companies. So we've seen a little bit of a tendency of some companies being bought out from the market in the last few years. And I, you know, if, unless the, the share prices go up, we probably will see more of that going forward. Uh, and of course, they have the experience of restructuring and of, of cutting costs and, be, and improving the intrinsic value of the company. It's not always the case that they buy the entire company. Sometimes they leave, they just buy the majority or the, or the controlling stake and leave a free float anyway. And that's sometimes a good thing for us if we see that a, a better group or a better set of management come in and, and uh, take over a company and then we can you know, anticipate better returns going forward. But there, it's a little bit of a risk, yeah, I would say, in, in some case that, or uh, of a lack of, loss of opportunity if too many companies get bought out too early uh, from the market. And you find lack of opportunity an issue for you, I think. Not at this point, but I mean, you have to think of <laughs> scenarios anyway. comes, sure. Um, of course, emerging markets over the last six months has been a pretty volatile space with yeah. risk off and people mm. concerned about Turkey and Argentina yeah. and a huge sort of uh, risk off and fall mm. going into sort of December, late January mm. and a, a snapback. Mm. How's the performance of the fund being uh, over the last sort of six months? Well, uh, I don't remember the old... This year, of course, it's been quite good. I, I think we're up 15% or so uh, for this year. We were, of course, the, the, last, the last couple of months of last year were not very good. Uh, it's hard to remember the exact data for the yes. six months. But, but uh, you know, th these types of things, they do happen relatively frequently that, you know, emerging markets is, is at the end of the tail a little bit, so it goes up and down more than many other markets. But I would say that the volatility of the Russian market actually has decreased significantly in the last few years, particularly as there now it's a bit more uh, domestic long-term capital gets invested. They've changed the regula regulation of the, of the Russian pension funds and so on. So I think that has something to do with the lower volatility than before. And then, of course, a lot of this, this uh, emerging market volatility comes from uh, countries with relatively uh, vulnerable macroeconomic situation big current account deficits or big budget deficits and so on. And, and Russia, of course, it's very far from that. I mean, they, the, the Russian government is essentially debt-free right now. And uh, I think last year the budget surplus was something like 3%. We expect it to be, to be a little bit less, maybe 2% or so this year. Current account surplus, 7%. Uh, it's very strong. Uh, we still, we, we're, uh, we, the inflation is coming down also, and I think that will mean that they will start easing monetary conditions. In reality, the, the Russian both fiscal and monetary policy has been very restrictive. I mean, if you're running a 3% budget surplus and something like 3 or 4% real interest rates, then you're not, not trying your best to, to get growth going. And I mean, they have their reasons for this and they want to kill off inflation once and for all and so on. But I think maybe if you have some criticism, then maybe they've been a little bit too conservative. 
Inflation at the moment's running at around seven and a half percent. No, no, it's uh, it's around five, and it's on the way down. So it it jumped up a little bit uh, at some point uh, last year, and 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 they since they raised VAT, which I think they didn't really need to do that also at, at, at the beginning of this year. So the the VAT or we have a GST yeah. consumer tax is quite high in Russia. Yeah, is that right? What yeah. what sort of level is it? I think they just raised it. it it's twenty percent. 2010 and and I think personal taxes are quite yeah, low. Yeah, it's very low. They're, so personal income tax is 13 percent, and uh, and so so the the general taxation system is actually quite uh, mild and also very uh, interestingly they've become very uh, efficient lately. They're, everything has moved into uh, you know online systems and I think there were some some uh, commentators were saying that the, the Russian tax. Authorities are amongst the most efficient and kind of user-friendly in the world now. Wow. Uh, but of course, if you have a very simple tax system, then it's easy to fill in your tax returns. Yes, yes. The historical performance of the fund, I think I was looking at just reviewing this morning versus um, the benchmark, and mm -hmm. I was just sort of amazed by the difference that you've been able to yeah. eke out, which is congratulations. It's a fantastic you. performance. If you maybe just want to talk a little bit about that for our listeners. Well, I mean, <laughs> it, it, it kind of maybe sounds facile, but... You know, I, it goes back to what we've all talked about all the time here. You know, if you focus on the quality of management, what they're doing, what kind of qualitative changes are going on, rather than trying to see what's going to happen in the next few weeks or next quarterly report or something like that, there are tremendous differences that, that are achieved by better management. I took the example of, of uh, X5 and Magnet uh, before, yeah. but there are other similar things where, where uh, you know, Good management taking over a poorly run company and, and uh, you know achieving miracles, and uh, you know we we have a full investment team. We have t you know ten people involved in, in the investment process. Uh, you know, we go and see them, talk to them, you know give our <laughs> advice to them constantly, and and that way it's a little bit easier to identify when something is going well or going badly, and and uh, then you should be able to perform better than the index. And cannot guarantee anything for the future, but I can at least say that we're going to keep working the same way that we have. Matthias, can you talk a little bit about the composition of the fund versus the benchmark? Mm. Yeah, well, I would say that the, the benchmark is a little bit of a poor reflection of the, uh, of the whole Russian uh, opportunity, because it's very focused. I mean, we have nothing against uh, commodities. There are a lot of interesting commodity companies, but it's very focused towards the big com commodity producers and also maybe even more uh, seriously, has a very high weighting of SOEs, state-controlled companies. Mm -hmm. And in general, the best entrepreneurship you find in Russia are probably in more consumer-oriented businesses, uh, probably in companies that are not state-controlled. Uh, and so we have always had a very low weighting of state-controlled companies. Probably we're among one of our highest points right now, but it's still only half of what the index is. And, and generally, we've been underweight uh, the uh, the oil and gas sector, because I mean there are interesting things that happen from time to time, but in reality some of the people who run oil companies are a bit lazy. You know they, you know they make money <laughs> even if they don't try so hard. Mm -hmm. Whilst other people, you know, work harder and more effective, and 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 you know you've seen more uh, turnover in terms of ownership and management in uh, some some companies that are not inherently as uh, profitable as some of the oil. Sure. Have been. 
can I ask you to talk a little bit about the reforms that you've seen yeah. come into the Russian economy and the businesses there? Yeah. No, I think that there was a big drive that started, you know, you can say after the crisis of 2008, when you know previously things had been going well, they hadn't really done enough work to, to reform a large parts of the of the Russian economy. But they realized in 2008 that the you know capital markets didn't work very well. They didn't like the dependence on foreign capital and so on. That was withdrawn very quickly in 2008, of course. And so uh, you launched, they launched a big, big initiatives to improve uh, the whole economy, maybe particularly the financial sector, where there was a, 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 a task force set up to turn Moscow into an international financial center. Uh, Alexander, our, our CIO, actually became the, uh, the president of the corporate governance committee there to kind of reform those rules. Uh, but there's also been tremendous drive towards moving a lot of government interaction from you know bureaucratic potentially corrupt offices to online so people do their government business without meeting anybody and there that's been a you know the mainstay of the anti-corruption drive that we've seen so you know i mentioned earlier the the uh, the tax uh, tax uh, administration being very efficient but there, there are many other uh, elements that have become much better and the easiest way to kind of look at that uh, is to, to look at the, uh, the um, ease of doing business rankings. Yes. So in 2013, uh, Russia was still 112th position down with you know, some pretty miserable places. Uh, and over these last few years, it's now risen to 31st place, I think, right between uh, France and Spain. Uh, so it's you know, so put, put several risk. OECD countries behind them in yeah. terms of ease of doing business. Set some real progress from yeah. 112 uh, up to 31st. Uh, we were talking uh, just previously uh, to recording this podcast about some of the advantage you have on information mm. and the fact that uh, in recent years, um, participants in the market have really disappeared, which gives you real access um, to the market. Can you talk a yeah. little bit about that? Yeah, well, I mean, th this trend of... of uh less research I think is not only in Russia, it's in a lot of places after the rule changes and so on uh, where you cannot bake the, the fees into, into, into the commissions anymore. Mm -hmm. So I said, and, and Russia is not a prioritized market for most big uh, investment banks. And it means that hardly any of them have any research on Russia. And so if you compare our situation now com compared to 10 years ago, I mean, then there are lots of analysts and now they're probably, you know, you know, the number of analysts in covering Russian companies gone down by, you know, 60-70%, uh, whilst we have at least a strong team as we ever had. So, in some ways, we have a stronger informational uh, uh, advantage than we used to have. And I think it's, it's always been relatively easy. If you're a serious investor, if, you know, to talk to, to management teams directly, and we, we're very engaged investors, we try to advise them uh, about you know how they can benchmark against best, best practices around the world or what they can do in terms of transparency and so on so many of these people see us as, as uh, some form of colleagues almost that we are helping them with free advice which everybody likes so uh, so we uh, I think that helps us getting to un better understand the quality of management what they're trying to achieve you know what we can expect in the future and so on sure can we maybe sort of summer uh, in conclusion talk about uh, the ethical, social and governance. I know some of our clients in the mm -hmm. past have asked questions in this area, but yeah. perhaps if you could talk about the sort of ESG 
treatment or management that you're seeing mm. with Russian companies and how that's developing? Yeah, I mean, I think that it goes hand in hand with the uh, kind of modernization of the Russian industry. I mean, previously these were, you know, Soviet <laughs> production units and, you know, there was a lot of spillages and lots of problems of, and, you know, poor working conditions and so on. But now when they, they are mainly private companies or, or privately controlled companies, then you, you, and they want to be more efficient, then of course they don't want to have any spillages, they don't want to have, and they want, you know, their working conditions to be uh, conducive to, <laughs> to high productivity. So you've seen a tremendous improvement, I mean, how, you know, modern facilities now compared to what they used to look like 10 years ago. Uh, and, and that has only partly been reflected in these rankings but uh, you know we can clearly see that that uh, these are much more professionally run companies and uh, and much more responsibly run companies than they used to be. And in summing up, your, your sort of outlook at the moment for the opportunity in the in the space. Uh, well, you know, I mean, you have you have two two elements to this. Like one is the uh, the uh, kind of increases in intrinsic value, and I think that the trends towards modernization, productivity increases, higher profits, higher cash flows. All of these things are in place. Uh, so, uh, on that side, we're, we're, we're not worried that the, uh, the companies are definitely becoming more valuable intrinsically. Uh, but, of course, the, the, uh, the market is also buffeted by, by global trends and by you know, political uh, considerations and so on. And, and that's what's driven the, uh, the share prices or the multiples down uh, in the last few years. It's hard to have a, a you know a strong point of view when this will improve radically, but I think we've seen some small steps in the right direction. Uh, you know, the less conflict between Russia and, and Ukraine. I think the end of this Mueller investigation will maybe be a little bit helpful to to make this light, less poisonous situation between uh, the U.S. And, and, uh, and Russia. And it doesn't take that much in terms of improvement. I think for us to get you know, relatively uh, strong uh, performance because with these very low valuations, most international investors are basically completely without exposure to Russia. Even, and so they're underweight their indices. And uh, maybe if, if and, and I think they also see that the Russian economy is doing better than maybe they had thought it would under sanctions and so on. Uh, because it has a very limited effect on the, on, the, on the Russian economy. So it becomes a, a, a braver and braver bet not to have Russia in your portfolio. And, uh, you know, big institutional investors are not always that brave. So, uh, you know, when, when will we get normal valuations? I don't know. But if you have a reasonably, uh, you know, long horizon for your investments, which I think everybody should have, then you can say that it's likely to be better than... <laughs> Uh, the multiples are likely to be considerably better than now in a, in a few years' time. And uh, importantly, now compared to other times, now you're at least getting paid to wait because mm -hmm. we have these high dividend yields. You get your, your 8% a year, plus you get some profit growth, of course. So you can, you can even without multiple expansion, you get you know, between 10 and 20% return. And uh, that's pretty good to get these days. While you wait, fantastic. Matthias, thank you very much for your time. It's been very, very helpful and I really enjoyed it. Uh, is there anything else you'd like to leave our listeners with before we finish up? Well, I know it's a long way from, uh, from Australia, but, but um, 
I think the the most uh, efficient way of of getting comfortable with uh, with investing in Russia is actually to visit. I mean, it's a it's a very nice place to visit. It's interesting, a lot of culture, a lot of things to see. Moscow is probably the biggest city in in Europe, and uh, has been. Uh, Everything was cleaned up very nicely for the World Cup last year, and uh, and uh, so it's uh, user friendly in a way that it maybe wasn't before. So I would encourage people to come and visit. Yeah, we'll hope to see you on the ground. Thank yeah. you very much. Appreciate your time. Thank you. Thank you for listening to Inside the Rope with David Clark. Be sure to subscribe to this podcast on iTunes. You can connect with David by visiting codacapital.com. Any views expressed in this recording represent the personal opinions of the speaker and do not represent the view of any other party. If this recording contains reference to any financial products, that reference does not constitute advice or recommendation and may not be relied upon. Listeners in Australia are encouraged to visit www.moneysmart.gov.au to obtain information regarding financial advice and investments.